The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Author and actor Carl Geary is with us for the Culture Club today. He has just published his new novel, which is his second, Juno Loves Legs. And before we get to the Culture Club choices, Carl, thank you for joining us. Tell us about this novel. What's the story behind it? Thanks. Uh, it's The novel's called Juno Loves Legs and uh, it's in the title. It's, it's, a, it's a story of uh, friendship and uh, loyalty about... Uh, where friends can give you what perhaps families couldn't, um, and I think it's 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 sort of the the emancipating quality of love. Um, it's set in the eighties in Dublin, um, and and the eighties in Dublin was a really interesting time, where for the first time in contemporary Irish um, history, there was a moment where we became cool for a second. And right behind that was kind of a cloak of Catholicism. So we moved very quickly. It was an extraordinary decade in Ireland where we went from sort of underneath the uh, the rules of the church and then suddenly it opened up. Um, and I, I remember it myself where there was thrift stores in Dublin suddenly and there was cool record shops and there was, it sort of, it sort of became alive. There was a lot of cultural things that were shifting at that time. It gave birth to the likes of U2 and Sinead O'Connor and the Waterboys. And, you know, we were moving on a, on a circuit that seemed everything was possible. And of course, the problem was for a lot of people, a lot of the same people, uh, that modernity didn't ever pay off. And so there's a lot of people got kind of dropped through the net, kind of fell to the side. And, and, and I'm, it was, I'm exploring all of those kind of themes in the book. But the most, for me, the, the warmth of, of friendship, the warmth of love. Um, because you've got two young protagonists in this. Yeah. In the first section of the book and then they get older in the second section. Yeah, we run right through that decade from, from young. It is a moment very early on where Juno is... Uh, She's extremely isolated. She's alone. She's kind of hungry for affection. And in a moment of uh, incredible and, and very simple courage, she stands up for this kid that she doesn't know. And in that courage, the trajectory of her entire life changes because the two of them suddenly bond because they're the same. They're both lost and in each other they find something um, very unique, very special. It's interesting that you've gone back to 1980s Dublin because you left it as a 16-year-old, yeah. didn't you? You went to New York, which is an extraordinary young age That's young. to head off to New York. Yeah, it is. It's young. It's young. And, and, and it wasn't, certainly wasn't unusual at that time for people to leave. People were leaving en masse. Certainly at that age, it was. Maybe a few years older than 16. Yeah, they, <laughs> I mean, I, I know from the reaction of the immigration officer who met me and he said, uh, he looked at me and I had a student passport because I was young enough to had, have one. And that meant it was only going to be valid for six months. And he looked at me, he goes, well, almost, what are you doing? But he looked at me and he said, uh, is somebody meeting you? And I said, uh, I said, uh, yeah, 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 my uncle. And there was no uncle. And he, he obviously presumed, well, there's no way he's here on his own. Because I was 16 going on 12. I mean, I looked very young. Um, Were you running away from home? I wasn't running <laughs> away from home. I was running towards something. And actually, you know, you know, as I think of it now, as a parent, um, 
my family were so worried. They were so worried. Um, and, and uh, but you know, there really weren't the opportunities, certainly for a kid like me. I hadn't done well in school. Uh, I had a job on uh, Talbert Street selling wallpaper and that wasn't a career. Um, and there just weren't that many possibilities. Um, and so, you know, I had an opportunity to somebody I knew had a, had a phone number for somebody in New York. I'd never met them. I'd spoken to them once on the phone and they ran a bicycle messenger uh, company in the East Village in New York. And I called the guy up and uh, he said, yeah, 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 come on over. And I showed up. Perp guy. <laughs> so so it was, it was the kind of thing you can only do at 16, you know. Have you ever lived in Ireland since? No. I, no, that's not quite true. I tried for about six months, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, I, not, not in a real way, no, no. And yet you set your novel in Ireland. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think, I mean, look, there's a, there's a, there's a long-standing tradition of exiles, Irish exiles who write about Ireland. It, it's in the DNA, you know, those first 16 years, it, they're everything. You know, um, so I, I do. I, I, it's, it's interesting. I wonder how often I'll continue to revisit it. It's. Uh, yeah, it's in the DNA. I don't know. Speaking of being in the DNA, where we always start the Culture Club is by asking you to tell us about the first bit of music that you remember getting, grabbing, purchasing. What have you gone for? Um, th- this was re- it's, first off, can I just apologise to anyone listening? I really struggled to kind of you know, bring it down to a single. I don't know if it's if the Gemini. I just have so many lists that it's impossible to even get a top five. There was a couple of songs that really um, moved me um, as a youngster. Uh, Van Morrison was huge for me. Leonard Cohen was huge for me. Uh, and there was something in the lyrics um, of both of those characters, particularly Leonard Cohen, uh, Take This Waltz, um, which is based on the, on the Lorca play, a poem, um, and 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 that's that's amazing. Anything that kind of deals with sex and death always seems to seem to work for me. Um, but uh, I can't remember which one we spoke about last. Can you give me a, a clue? Well, actually, the, the, we, I have one I am not familiar with. As the first piece of music that you when you were buying secondhand albums, the Gulf of Arabi by Catel mm. Kinnick. Katel Koenig. Um, she is an Irish and Breton and Welsh singer-songwriter. She's remarkable. And when I was running or working in Chennai a million years ago, she launched her album out of there and she started with this song, The Gulf of Araby. And it's taken from James Joyce's uh, Araby, his short story in the dead. And it's one of the most beautiful, heart-wrenching songs I've ever heard. I remember listening to it the first time and it just moved through me. And I haven't heard her do it since, but her live performance of it, it was, it was just a real force of nature. Yeah, it really had an effect on me. We actually have a clip have from you? it. Yeah. Oh, great. Fill a veil with shells from Kilani 
That's just a little bit of something I have to admit I haven't heard before, Carl. Isn't that beautiful? What a voice. Isn't that exciting? I mean, I'm actually listening to it and I'm getting a bit bit, bit hot around the chest. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's just such a beautiful song and so moving. Um, she's a terrific poet and songwriter. She's remarkable. You mentioned Sinead in mm. New York. I was only ever there once in the early 1990s. Yeah. No way. But why does that still have such a big sort of cultural resonance for many Irish people? It's a good question. It was about the size of this studio we're in. It was a tiny hole-in-the-wall place. Actually, most people walked in and asked where the room is, where's the back room. Um, I think what was amazing about that room, uh, and I've thought about it a good deal since certainly Jeff Buckley having his, his first album out of there, Live at Sinead, was a big... Uh, you know, champion for the room. But it was more than that. What what existed in that room at that time, which would seem unthinkable now uh, in New York and Dublin and London and major cities, was this sense of community um, that anybody would walk in after two or three visits. They'd be known by name. They'd be welcome. We never charged money for gigs. Everyone was welcome. Uh, and all of the musicians particularly Irish musicians, but not exclusively. When they came through town, they would do whatever uh, set gig they were going to do and then they would come show up and do a do the session down with us. And it, it reminded me of what probably happened in, in the 20s and 30s with jazz musicians who would go up to Harlem afterwards and do the real music. And so we had the real music um, and there was no commerce around that. It was It was just people who loved and had that joy for music. It was beautiful. It was very special. Talking of jazz, you've nominated Miles Davis and Kind of Blue as your favourite album. Why so? Yeah, I'm not, look, I, again, I'm apologising. I know that sounds horribly pretentious, but I had, a, I had a great introduction to jazz. I never listened to jazz growing up. It wasn't anywhere in my, my framework or my horizon at all. I lived in an apartment in New York, 151 Avenue B, down on the other side of Tompkins Square Park. And it was, you know, it was a rough and ready spot. But the woman who owned it, the building, would open her windows every day and play Charlie Parker. And it didn't make any sense to me. And I got talking to her one day and she told me that it was Charlie Parker's last address in New York City. That he sent a telegraph to his wife before he overdosed and it was to that address. Uh, which is incredible. So it was kind of a, it was an introduction to jazz um, that was really kind of great. I actually then would open my window and have a listen and then she would, you know, steer me towards certain stuff. But when I hit on Miles Davis, there was two albums. There was Kind of Blue and also Sketches of Spain. Um, it was amazing. And then I remember when I was, uh, when I, my wife and I, we, good nearly 20 years ago when we, we met, we used to listen to it all the time. And so it's, that album for me, it's just synonymous with that early love and uh, it's a beautiful album. What's incredible about the album um, is that it was recorded in two three-hour sessions and then a third just to kind of mop up. But so you're looking at six hours. It's one of the greatest albums ever recorded. Incredible, incredible. But Miles was, 
The track we have from Kind of Blue, which features John Coltrane, Cannonball, Adderley and Bill Evans, is So What? Beautiful. Say, Carl Gurry, you look there as if you're sort of lost in admiration almost. It's it's just, you know what he does? What Miles Davis did, well, I mean, I'm, look, I'm, I'm speaking to the converted here, but he just made it seem so simple. So simple. And it's not. What he was doing was incredible. He was the guy, apparently, that all the other musicians wanted to play with. There was no one else. He was, because he, he'd taken all of that history of, of jazz and blues music and, and distilled it down to the simplicity. And it's just perfect. Well, it struck me listening to that there was space for everybody, wasn't it? You could yeah. hear every instrument yeah. individually and That's yet right. collectively. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, if there's not generosity in art, what are we doing? You've seen thousands of gigs, not just in Chine. We asked you to pick out a favourite and you've gone for somebody that you mentioned already, Leonard Cohen. Mm. Now, we've had lots of guests on the Culture Club who've mentioned Leonard Cohen at Kilmainham here in Dublin. Ah, yes. You haven't. You've gone for a different venue. Yeah, Radio City Music Hall. Uh, I've seen him twice. I saw him at the Beacon on the Democracy Tour and then later uh, when he was, he was quite a bit older in Radio City. And you knew you were coming to the end of something, although nothing about his performance belied that truth. Um, he uh, he had, and I'm sure this, anybody who's seen him live would say the same thing, who has that thing. He has this presence that you're, you're in, the, in, in, in front of something otherworldly. Like he was connected to something that was, uh, that we all dream of. Um, and the way he moved, the way he spoke, uh, he was just full of compassion and music. And uh, yeah, I, I, I literally, it, and it's mortifying, I cried throughout the performance. I'm Why is that mortifying? Well, it just because I was, I mean, I'm still from Dublin, you know. <laughs> I, I was, uh, I've never experienced that like it. And I've seen gigs, I've seen great gigs. But there was something otherworldly about that experience. And it was, the two hours went in a flash and I just, I, I just, and I think maybe part of it was that there was an awareness that our time with him was limited, ultimately. He, you know, he was, he was quite a bit older. I mean, he was well into his 70s at that point. Uh, and it was incredible. I just felt a, like a gift. Beautiful. We don't actually have a clip from the Radio City shows that were of good enough quality to play, so it actually is live in Dublin. Oh, fabulous. A little bit of Leonard Cohen singing So Long, Marianne. Beautiful. 
to try to read your palm I used to think I was a little gypsy boy Before I let you take my Leonard Cohen, their favourite gig of Carl Geary, the author and actor who is with us for the Culture Club today. And we'll get to all his remaining choices in the second part of the Culture Club. And I'll also be asking him about his wife's part in two of the greatest TV series of all time. That's coming up when we come back from this break. Carl Geary is with us for the Culture Club here on The Last Word Today FM. He's just brought out his second novel, Juno Loves Legs. Are you acting at all these days, Carl? No, good God, no. no Jeez, that's very definite. No, I haven't done that in over a decade and I'd have, I, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't do it for me. In this, you know, um, it was great. I really got to be around some interesting people and do some interesting stuff, some less interesting stuff. But this... this uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've been writing full time for years now and I, 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 I don't think, I mean, don't get me wrong, there was no, you know, you know, no, nobody was sobbing when I stopped, but uh, I, I, it just wouldn't do for me what this does. You know, fair enough. I'm going to go to television because, as I said before the break, <laughs> and we have to give credit to your wife we as well. Do. Part of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Yeah, yeah, it was incredible, actually. Yeah, she, so, so to be clear, she played uh, Lydia Redart Quayle, who was an extremely uptight American uh, corporate entity who's part of the crime syndicate. Uh, my wife is none of those things. She's from <laughs> Glasgow. Sorry, what's her name again? Laura Fraser. Okay. Uh, she's from Glasgow. She's tough as old boots. And she's, you know, she's kind of, you know, she's from Glasgow. Um, <laughs> and uh, what was brilliant was listening to her find whoever that character was in the next room to the point where, you know, in the, in the show, her voice has changed. She, she changes her accent, she changed her voice and the whole way she holds herself, she's transformed. It was terrifying. You're looking at, so, like, she's a terrific, I mean, she's really a gifted actor. And uh, to watch somebody transform themselves in that manner was extraordinary. Really story. And she's brilliant. The show's brilliant and she's brilliant in it. Yeah. What other television have you picked for us? Uh, what did I pick? I'm trying to remember. But you have now. gone back to your youth. Oh, I, I remember actually. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. I, I, I didn't pick a, a show as such. There was a couple of huge moments for me in television growing up. The biggest one I'll never forget. I, I'm a big fan of boxing, um, oddly enough. Um, and I remember when uh, Muhammad Ali, it was one of the first times on satellite they, 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 you were able to view live boxing. It was Muhammad Ali's last fights. And every kid in the street was, oh my God, at 12 o'clock tonight, we're all allowed to stay up late and watch the Ali fight. That was huge. Top of the Pops was huge. And then, I don't know what year it was, Vincent Hanley came in for three hours on a Sunday. It must have been around 1984. Would have been. Um, and he brought in MTV. 
And in Dublin, we had MTV for three hours a week on a Sunday. It blew my mind. It really brought the world in in a way that, you know, and like I'm saying about that period in Dublin or in Ireland in the 80s where suddenly things started to change in a different way, you know. Let's just hear a little bit. Vincent Handy presenting MT USA from New York. He used to fly over, yeah. I think, and do all the links, bring back the videos yeah. and assemble it in RT to go out at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, as I remember Amazing. well myself. Music Television USA, Vincent Hi, welcome to the City of Dreams. This is New York and this is Music Television USA. We're standing here on uh, 6th Avenue in New York, just across the road from Radio City, talking to you two fans. Yeah! here absolutely crazy time these two guys couldn't get tickets in the box office sold out so they went to ticket scalpers and paid get this how much 75 dollars a ticket and what's the and what's the face value of the ticket uh 1650 1650 face value 75 bucks you two are so big here are you looking forward to the concert sure. tonight that's gonna be great that's so gonna be great for so the longest time and we'll be back with more in a moment music television usa music never Oh my God, <laughs> isn't that great? What a forward thinking guy, Vincent Hanley. What a remarkable man, you know, to think to, to, to go and do that and bring that show here. And know it was, it was transformative it really was. for a generation yeah. back yeah. at that time. I think that might be, I hadn't really put that, that might be why I ended up in New York two years That's later. That's what I was just I thinking. I mean, it, it really, I, I'd never joined the dots myself and I really think it had that much of an effect on me. Do you know? Also, you know, 75 bucks for a ticket, you're done good. You, know? <laughs> you wouldn't get in the door now for that. OK, let's go for other things. <laughs> Your favourite play or a theatre show or musical, you've gone for a really good choice here because it's one, I remember when I saw it a year ago in the Gaty, I was just knocked out by it. And he had done this slot, the Culture Club for us, ah, the week before. Oh, perfect. Gabriel Byrne, his Walking With Ghosts yeah. show, which yeah. was terrific. Yeah, I saw it again in the Olympia. Uh, I just happened to be in Ireland at the time and it was, it, it was an incredible show. What, I couldn't believe what I was watching. It was never sentimental or saccharine or, uh, it was just such an honest portrait of a life. It was so incredibly moving to me. Um, also, I don't think, I, I mean, I always knew how talented a performer he was, but this was on another level. It was, I couldn't believe, like moment to moment, the amount of characters he brought to life effortlessly. It was an amazing performance. I'm glad you, I'm glad you feel the oh, same way. Yeah, yeah, it really was something special. Um, and I, you kind of felt you were watching something special, yeah. you know. Um, Actually, we have a little bit of the official trailer from the Broadway production of Walking With Ghosts. It was my friend Christy who said to me one night, you need to do something that fulfills you. Why don't you join an amateur drama group? And at last I felt that I belonged. Television, a wonderful thing all the same. There you are, and there you are. <laughs> Around the streets where we lived, there were so many characters like Springsprung, who worked in the library, who walked on the pavement as if it was a mattress. How's it going, lads? <laughs> she was wearing her special spotted dress and her bird feather hat. I'd never 
heard my mother called Madam before, and I realized that those ghosts were not really walking with me. They were inside me. Just a little bit there from oh, yeah. Walking With Ghosts. Gorgeous, isn't it? Um, You've yeah. a lot of movie choices. I've loads. And I, I, I again, you know, I, I could have kept going with this list. There was a, you know what I realised as I was putting it together? There's sort of a period of film that really uh, had, a, had a, an effect on me. RTE used to do a thing. I don't know if they still do it, but when I was growing up, my dad and I would, after midnight, RTE always, always used to put on what we used to just refer to as the black and whites. And and uh, we would sit uh, and watch these films together. And it was a way, it was a lovely way of bonding with my old man. Uh, and it was also like, I hadn't realised at the time, it was an education. Because I was watching classics, I was watching movies like Double Indemnity, like uh, Sunset Boulevard, those kind of films. And I think the next period beyond that, that fed into great eras of filmmaking was sort of, you know, from the 60s, 70s, where the director, the uh, auteur became, you know, had power for once. So there was people like Sidney Lumet in particular, uh, uh, with him, I'm specifically thinking of Network, The Verdict, um, films like Norma Ray, uh, which was an incredible film at the time with Sally Field. And and what all, what all of those films had in common was this idea of a little guy and trying to trying to fight his way or fight his corner against a big guy. And it's kind of a Hollywood trope in some way. But there's something very sincere about it. It's the kind of film that has gone out of fashion. Now we seem to celebrate the big guy. I don't know why, but that seems to be the, the way Hollywood has gone, you know. Um, and and I, I suppose it was when, you know, each one of those films, in particular Network, it was, it was sort of in response to... Um, huge corporations have an influence on media. Uh, the verdict was about Paul Newman uh, going up against James Mason as, as a burnt out lawyer going after uh, the Archdiocese in Boston. And then with Norma Ray, it's, it's her trying to establish, it's a true story about a woman trying to establish a union in a textile factory in North Carolina and uh, I think it was Roanoke. And I just don't think these films are being made anymore. And I remember watching them when I was young and they really, uh, they had a profound effect on me in some ways. I thought they were incredible. And actually, when you go back and revisit them, they hold up terribly well. Well, we're going to play probably the most famous scene from Network. I know exactly where you're going. Yeah, Peter Finch's famous mad as hell scene. Yeah. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. 
You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Peter Finch. Peter Finch. From Network. Listen, very quickly, books, authors, you didn't give us any. I meant to, I, I didn't give you a favourite. Yeah. And, and I won't give you a favourite. And the reason I won't give you a favourite is because I couldn't pick one. Okay. Uh, that's, that's about, and also I felt like, you know what? I know what goes into them and I know how much work and you just to pick to play favourites it felt unkind I can certainly tell you what I've been reading and what I'm mad about uh, I was delighted to see Annie Arnoux uh, get the Nobel Prize I think her work is incredible The Years is a book I've revisited and I still can't figure out how she did it uh, she has this, another book called A Simple Passion which is about uh, a love affair over the course of a year we never meet the second person and it's just a per- the, the the woman and her experience with the relationship as opposed to the relationship itself. It's incredible. And and what was incredible about her is she'd been told forever, you can't be writing about this stuff, you're an ordinary person. You don't get to have a voice. And she resisted that and she continued. She's a remarkable person. Uh, Eva Ballester, uh, she's a poet. Um, she wrote two books, one Boulder and the other one's Permafrost. They're both incredible. They're these tiny little books and they just punch you in the gut and are so raw and honest and gorgeous. Uh, in Ordinary Time is just is, a, is just out recently. It's a non-fiction by Carmel McMahon and uh, it's a beautiful book that talks about Irish mythology. It talks about family. It talks about New York at the period we're talking about. Uh, I got an advance on How to Build a Boat, Elaine Freeney and it's stunning. It's a stunning book um, and I I think people should look out for that. What else can I tell you? Who else? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I'm out of time. Perfect. I keep <laughs> going otherwise. That's good. Carl Geary, it has been great meeting you and congratulations on the publication of your second novel, Juno Loves Legs, which I'm sure will be a big hit for you. Thank you so much for being with us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today,